Hey everyone, welcome back to the Contextual Insertion Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Smith, and I'm once again sitting here with Tech Bro Tito. Nostrovia. So we're having a pretty good discussion earlier. Uh, you know, we're talking about the court again. You know, again, we're not lawyers. We're not talking about the legal minutia of any of the rulings here. We're just kind of talking about the dynamics of the court itself and you know, how, how it kind of gives us some insights into the broader right and the different strains of conservatism as well as the way people respond to uh, incentives and life experiences you know there's been some talk with this court that it's gone from being the Roberts court because he kind of him and Kennedy were kind of the swing votes and you know of course Roberts is the chief justice so he gets a chance to kind of twist some arms and like now basically with five uh, pretty solid conservative people in the court it's essentially Thomas's court because he's the senior uh, associate justice and he is the uh the pretty hardcore right-wing guy and when it come when everyone's on the same page he's really the guy who's driving things and as well as because he's the senior justice he gets to assign the opinion when he's in the majority so you know it was really interesting because the life experiences from like roberts and thomas are so radically different and do you want to jump in here um Tech bro, and give us some insights what you were thinking about. Yeah, so um, New York Times has written pieces on how it is you know, calling it the, the Thomas Court in in sort of wake and sort of right before the the ruling in Dobbs, uh, the overturning Roe v. Wade and the the um, and Bruin the the gun case, call, saying that if, if effectively that uh, that Justice Justice Roberts had essentially lost control of court, it was no longer was no longer really uh, chief justice of his of his majority, but rather um, that Thomas was the one commanding. And so this is the the, the birth of originalism, which is not a uh, a uh, Roberts trait. And uh, essentially, that originalism has had a second has had a real second coming. I'm not even sure if Alito qual- fully qualifies as originalist. I'd have to double check. But point is that we that virtually all that virtually all the new appointments, Gorsuch, uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, you know they're they're bo- they're originalists, and this originalist block is strong enough, and you know, and has enough has enough weight essentially that it is new new coming. But really, what it presages for the difference is that big difference is uh, there's conservatives. Conservatism itself is is problem word I think for GOP because conservatism can mean everything from wishing to keep things exactly as they are today, freeze mo- things in time, freeze drag queen story hour as something that happens, freeze uh you know freeze the fact that they're still not issuing permits for uh for concealed carry in New York and California, and it can mean conserving you know it can mean uh, conserving back to originalism, back to founding of country back in 1789. It can mean a mixture of such things. It can mean perhaps overturning uh, Warren Court, which yeah, I would love to have podcast on Warren Court and the impact on uh, on uh, impact on American society today. I don't think enough people talk about how influential, how important that was. But point is, what does conservatism mean? It means any, it means whatever you want it to mean. And this has been a big problem because it says, "Oh, I'm a conservative." Conserve what exactly? Are you going to you are you going to conserve uh, are you going to conserve drag queen story hour? Are you going to conserve social security? You know, George George W. Bush was elected as as a conservative, but he wished to try to eliminate social security. He failed, and he he met bipartisan uh, you know bipartisan support and went down in a flame flaming thing. And GOP has not gone close to touching, though Paul Ryan tried to do that again, which is conservative. 
Like, it means nothing. And people want to use word conservative because it makes them feel good. But it really has no statement of values, and it allows snakes and grass to hide. It allows wolves and sheep's clothing to call themselves conservative. Because, you know, because from a certain point of view, they're conservative, which is not. You know, it's interesting, you know, um, we're talking about Thomas and Roberts. Is, you know, Roberts has been kind of... Uh, a pampered life and he was sort of born into kind of a cultural conservative GOP type of environment you know versus Thomas was definitely not you know and, and it was uh if you look especially like at the confirmations for like Thomas compar compared to Roberts when I mean, Roberts was fairly smooth Thomas was dragged through the coals you know um and he with a whole Anita thing Anita Hill thing as well as um just being, you know, Joe Biden going after him. Um, you know, there's that quote where Thomas says, you know, they put my life through hell. They put me through hell for 43 years. I'm going to give the the liberals hell for 43 years as payback. And it, it's really interesting because, you know, Thomas is someone, you know, I actually found out the other day. It's really interesting. It's like Thomas, English isn't his first language. He actually, um, he grew up in, in coastal Georgia, like the Gucha Gully people or something. Uh, it's this you know this um subculture of people descended from african slaves that are um i think they have some they're, they're actually fairly well connected to the african continent like culturally they have a lot of you know, they've kind of been stuck in time so to speak and they speak this language called like um gullish or something like that and it's like a weird creole mix and he grew up speaking that and he like learns like and it's considered like an actual like language but he actually that was his first language and then like he ended up speaking English later, but he grew up incredibly poor. Um, it's interesting, you know, he talked about this in his autobiography. Is his, his, he called his granddad Daddy because his mother, um, you know, was a single mom, and he ended up, uh, you know, being raised by his grandfather, and his grandfather, like, put him to work and taught him a work ethic and, you know, um, taught him a lot of things. You know, the, the, you know he was this uh, country older you know older black gentleman who was very strict with raising raising thomas and you know taught him a lot of things about hard work and self-respect and um lots of just very powerful cultural things but it's interesting too because you know we, we were talking about this as well but the difference between people who are attacked and people who are not and that's a huge that's a huge formative um influence on someone who's right-leaning about have they actually been attacked by the left, like brutally been attacked in some way physically or morally or, you know, uh, you know, in terms of reputationally, some form of attack. The people who have had that and have survived are much more militant in my experience. Right. And this is this is an important thing. Like I said, have you had have you had strife essentially to 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 force you to either capitulate in beliefs or to double down in such things? And just just quick up just I just quickly wish to wish to go back. Um, the John Roberts thing, I'm pulling up cases, it was from 2015, it was, uh, you can look it up yourself, it was uh, Rodriguez was a, was a case, and so he said in court, uh, he said in court, addressing the lawyers, he said, usually people have told me when you're stopped, the officer says, license re registration, and this was taken, uh, and it hasn't really been disputed since, that he himself has never been pulled over by a traffic to traffic officer, he has no idea what system is like for for police interactions, and this is a, this was a Slate article that was covering it, but, it's, you know, like I said, it doesn't matter what side of spectrum you're on. So, point is, Thomas grew up 
poor. He grew up with these kinds of things. He grew up having to claw, trying to claw his way into into you know not just uh, uh, prominence, but you know and, and comfortable lifestyle. But especially as you know with the Anita Hill hearings and stuff, especially being lambasted, and especially especially with uh, with sort of conservative takes as as it were as a as a proud black man, he's come under incredible uh, attack, incredible criticism, and in the wake of Bruin, but really ironically enough, it wasn't so much guns; it was the abortion thing. They they, they he never did was not even his uh, ruling. It was Alito's ruling, but people were calling him Uncle Clarence, calling him the word that is is essentially magic word in the United States can get you fired for it. You know, liberals were calling him this because they they were so outraged about his betrayal of, of cause. And this is an important thing. You know, John Roberts falls under criticism uh, f- uh, during Obamacare debacle, debacle. And you know, it, the idea is that, that, in fact, the court likely is, over- is going to overturn an individual mandate. This is an important thing. And so uh, apparently the idea is that John Roberts uh, got scared. He got cold feet at last moment. And you know, the, the, from what we understand from court watchers and leaks and, and all this kind of thing, he was going to overturn mandate, then got scared because of criticism and all that, and part, you know, the court or whatever, switched his vote to preserve mandate, call it a tax, and say it was legitimate. But the point is, you could pressure him, you could scare him. Whereas, uh, you know, Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, uh, you know, and Kavanaugh being threatened by a, a, an assassin that came with a Glock, zip ties, knife, to, 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 uh, to kill him for his, both the prospective ruling on gun rights as well as uh, as being as well as overturning Roe v. Wade and the fact that they uh, continued with decision essentially though Roberts did not this is an important distinction that is not made which is a real conservative and you know is is John Roberts really really a rhino uh, you know a Republican in name only is he, is he not trying to conserve the system that we have now so how, is it not fair to call him, him a conservative and to call people that that uh, that conservatives identify as their conservative as in fact something different, something more radical, especially if they wish to return to something different. Again, this is problem with conservative language, but regardless if you wish to use it or not, you have to distinguish the two to have an intelligent conversation. Yeah, it was interesting. I was watching, um, not watching, but I found this on Twitter the other day. Um, you know, I'm glad you raised the point about being attacked from leftists because that's something we see so often. Um, the way they've been flipping because again you know thomas wrote the gun opinion he did not write the opinion about abortion that was not the one that was alito but thomas has been the one everyone is going after like they're the ones who are talking about impeaching him they've been going after him for a while because of his wife um they've been like hammering him and just like been obsessed with thomas they've been like probably at this point i think they're as obsessed with thomas as they are with trump like it's just crazy but I, I actually found something the other day you know we talked about this before um it was really interesting because how telling this was um you know we've mentioned before lefties tend to view people in as the group dynamics and not the individual person but you know and this is one of the things and and the, the way this person said this um the way they expressed it it was like a, a leftist anarchist a big leftist anarchist account um, you know, they said that, and it was actually talking about a different topic. They were talking about J.K. Rowling, because you know, if you if you've listened to if you've listened to anything that's happened lately, J.K. Rowling got doxxed. They found her address, and people were talking about sending her pipe bombs. There was threat. There was like a bombing threat to J.K. Rowling, and this person was like, um, "No, this is completely justified." Even though she's a woman, they're like, "No, it's not. It's not misogynistic to make a death threat to a woman." 
um, because you know, and it's and the person said because you know we are not defending women individually; we're defending women as a class. So, and part of defending women as a class is you attack anyone who undermines women as a class, even if the person themselves happen to, happens to be a woman. And this really kind of um, goes back into, and it was really it was really one of those mask off moments of like. You know, yeah, I support women, but you know, when when a, when a right wing person says that, or when a right wing person says, you know, I support group X, what they mean is I support everyone who's inside this group or has the characteristics of being group X. Like if if a person says, you know, right, a normal person even says, I support women. Anyone who's a woman is someone they support. So it would, and this is what has people confused because, you know, if you listen to Biden when he's like, you ain't black if you don't vote for Democrats. This kind of goes back to the same thing versus everyone who's in the group versus the abstract ideal of the class of whatever this is. Um, and yeah, it was very telling. So I'm going to, you know, the person said, I support women as a class. But of course, the unspoken part of that is I'm going to define women in a certain way as it includes the people that, you know, I, I definitely include as women. And anyone that, you know, opposes that class is not part of the class. Even if they happen to be biologically female, or even if they're black, they're, they lose the protection, the class protections, because they're class traitors. And this is a very, like, it's one of those things that's subtle, but then once you really kind of grasp it, it's just a dramatic shift in worldview. Because this is one of the things people like as human beings, like, we, you know, throwing the word out projection is, like, so cliched, but the reality is, is, like, projection is kind of part of theory of mind when you're trying to think of like how does someone else think you know what does this person think or how do they feel we try to project you know how we feel in their shoes but when you do that you bring a lot of um, suppositions and you know implicit premises that you haven't really spoken about into you your visualization of what their experience would be so I, th I think that's what I'm saying. This really is like the Thomas attack really kind of is in the same way. The way they've been going after him, you know, Thomas is a black man. He's a black American man, but he is not someone who is complying with the the leftist visualization of blacks as a class. So right. he's a traitor. Well, I saw, I saw on Twitter someone was saying, you know, has ever, anyone ever seen Clarence Thomas at the basketball game? And so the idea that essentially blackness would be earned from attending sporting events in person or something like that, and that, you know, if, you know, or again, you know, to quote, to quote Biden, if you won't, if you don't vote Democrat, you ain't black. It has to do with, with something you've, you've also seen of the idea of, you know, uh, multiracial white supremacists has been something something that you've seen recur uh, from time to time in media and they, they usually quickly back down from it because they realize how ridiculous it is but then you'll see uh, scholars in critical race theory say things such as um, that you know that white super, you know, white that white supremacy values are upholding whiteness. Whiteness does not require being white. Whiteness is something more than skin color. And so this this then goes to essentially conflating uh, the way that you know Western values or American values or traditional values as essentially whiteness. And so then this becomes a way to attack, and it becomes a Martin Bailey. It becomes a way to sort of change to change the goalposts. So you attack one, then attack the other. It becomes a, a way so you can never uh, fully grasp it and and just say no, you're being hypocrite here. But the point is, it's you know, it, trying to trying to uh, with a theory of mind, right? One of one of the criticisms I have, of course, is that um, 
essentially conservatives will always say, well, I give them the benefit of the doubt, or they'll use the uh, the uh, they'll use the um, the corollary to Occam's razor, which is Hanlon's razor, never attribute to malice that which can be explained by stupidity, and they always give the benefit of the doubt. Well, you know, let's just say they're mistaken. Let's just give the benefit of the doubt and say they're mistaken. Let's just do that. And the only question I have to ask is, when you do this with, with said opponent, or especially in the debate, when it's a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing, do they attribute the same level of, well, let's just assume that, he, you know, that my opponent is mistaken. This actually used to be something that would happen in the 90s. You'd see it with Bill Clinton and debates and all such things. But if that isn't a thing anymore, if Hillary Clinton says, let's not give benefit of the doubt to Trump, let's actually say that he is, in fact, a Russian agent, that we don't give benefit of doubt that he's incompetent, that he's trying to raise things, let's, in fact, say that it's malevolent. If you don't attribute same malevolence to other side, then you are not in fact engaging in an accurate theory of mind. You're only applying your principles, your ideas, your conception of world to, to other people without actually taking out outside evidence to weigh whether or not this is actually true. And this is, this, this is a major issue. And so one of the things is people that have fought have seen truly heinous. You know, uh, Clarence Thomas referred to his hearings as a high-tech lynching. This is not a black man who, who refers to himself as culturally black or identifying black or, you know, he hates affirmative action. This is not a man who, who, who wishes to cloak himself in, in victim uh, identity politics. He is strictly attempted to avoid this publicly at all costs. He has no interest in this. He does not you know, revel in this nor try to, you know, flop around on ground like European soccer player acting like an injury was done to him. So when he refers to a hearing as high-tech lynching, this is not... This is not, you know, the histrionics of someone like a Jess Jussie Smollett. This is, in fact, someone that, in fact, was deeply wounded. And I think there was a New York Times article that supposedly quoted him saying, they made my life hell for, the, for 43 years. I'm going to make liberals' life hell for 43 years more. Yeah, that was um, from, I think it was, uh, actually, I think a quote from, like, one of his clerks that said that. He said that, apparently. It was it was an interesting, and I, I, I believe it, you know. It's, this is someone who grew up in, in incredible poverty and was very much very much a self-made man very intelligent man who succeeded um you know we were talking the other day about someone who was like thomas is the person was claiming again someone said thomas is the dumbest person on the court and we're like well, what are you sure like there's that's that's you know absurd on its face but that's that's part of the thing you see from people who uh you know come at this from from a certain perspective well, and, and not to get too, too too deep into legal weeds, right? But, you know, Thomas was often said to be the pale imitation, the shadow, the dumber version, the lackey, the whatever, you know, throwing a racial stereotype, essentially, of a dumb black man, of, of Anton and Scalia, because they both were originalists and that Thomas did not speak on court. It was widely assumed he was dumb, he was, he was dumb black following Scalia. But the point is, and Scal but the thing is, Scalia referred to himself as a faint-hearted originalist, and the idea was he would compromise and actually compromise originalist values, originalist arguments, to try to get bigger majorities, and he argued for a more, mm, call it, uh, call it politically expedient or uh, you know or uh, you know more soft-hearted to you know political compromises essentially in Supreme Court rulings. This is what he argued for, and you can see, and you know, the, and Scalia was widely seen to have one of the most last legacies of a court of justice we'd seen on the court. But look at Thomas. 
Thomas has now come into his own. He comes up with a different version of originalism, far stronger, far harsher, again, backing the idea of spanking children in schools. Not because he endorses spanking children in schools, per se, but to say that this is a power that schools have and that states may take away or not, but it's not something for, for federal government to take away. This is the version of originalism that is, in fact, controlling court. And so the thing is, quite frankly, you know, and this is something I'd been, ho I, I'd been expecting for years, Thomas's originalism is in fact eclipsing, and in fact eclipsing the legacy of Antonin Scalia. Aside from Antonin Scalia as a different era of bipartisan support on court, in fact, when it comes to moral weight, when it comes to political power, when it comes to weighty rulings of court, perhaps Antonin Scalia quotes more uh, lofty, you know, uh, Western canon uh, sources and all this, and, and writes more, you know. Um, uh, more flamboyant opinions with, with easily quotable stanzas. But Clarence Thomas gets work done. Clarence Thomas is going to absolutely change landscape because instead of trying to compromise from it, you can see the, the value, essentially, of not, of sticking to principles, fighting for that, and refusing to back down you know, under furious criticism. And this is the kind of man that Clarence Thomas is. And so this is this is an important thing. It's it's you know, you have people like John Roberts who who will sway with wind, whereas a Clarence Thomas will not. And this is a you know important lesson essentially, I, I believe, that people haven't quite fully imbibed. You know, that they will say they they don't have language to talk about John Roberts and Clarence Thomas and to talk about them being different except to say one is inauthentic. But I don't think Paul Ryan was inauthentic, but Paul Ryan would, would switch on such things. And it's it's a it's a very difficult um it's a very difficult dynamic, but uh, so you see it in America first, right? And this is, you know, to transition to more than just court discussion. You see this in nascent people that were attacked by Antifa, that were attacked in various places. You have basically people that are baked in to refusing to change their minds. They will not compromise one inch. And this is the kind of thing you see in a Thomas. Thomas was attacked in what he referred to as a high-tech lynching and has refused to talk to New York Times, refused to do profiles, refused to do such things. And again, this has impacted him, I would say, so deeply that instead of like Antonin Scalia taking trips to Italy uh, to, to visit his roots and all this, you know, I, I hopefully can link a few pieces that we were reading about to Clarence Thomas's into a private life. And, you know, uh, there's been a few pieces that were very good uh, insights into the man. But he takes... RV trips with his wife to like Tennessee and Kentucky. This is this is a man who could easily have people fly him on private jets to get sushi in Tokyo one day, and then to fly him to go get uh to go to go you know uh, try uh, um to to try African delicacies in in uh, you know Nigeria the next day. He could he could have whatever. He could have whatever. You know he doesn't pay that much per se, but from endorsements or other things like that, and from influential people, he could live whatever jet set lifestyle he wants. But his choice is to go to Heartland America, to travel in an RV, to camp in RV parks, and to, to interact with people that have American flags on RVs. This is the man who's Supreme Court justice. This is you know driving an RV and getting a, a, a you know it's a getting an RV license with wife. This is not John Roberts. This is, in fact, 
you know, what, what, you know, Sarah Palin sort of talked about of, you know, uh, real Americans and stuff like that. And like I said, you know, you look at the, the contrast of someone that, that uh, falls under a relentless attack, like uh, Sarah Palin versus, uh, versus John McCain. Uh, you know, for example, and the kind of different trajectories, albeit, you know, different abilities. But this is a very different kind. And again, it's something that, you know, we talk about the real Americans, fake Americans, we talk about, you know, rhinos and, you know, whatever. But we, it's an inexact language. And but people have been trying to talk about it for decades because it's incredibly important. Will the person back you? Will they not back down in, in face of, uh, you know, fury and stuff like that? And will they stand firm to convictions? that eventually will go their way. You know, Thomas has been on the court since something like 92, if I recall correctly. He's been there for for, for a very long time, and he's been considered a kook, a nut, crazy, dumb, you know. And yet now he is poised to, to mark new occasion of court that, you know, in, in my, again, not to get too deep into legal scholarship, but it will almost certainly be known as the Thomas era. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, that's that's been one of the things that's, um, you know, like we were saying the other day when we had the, uh, we were linking that guy's piece, um, the leftist, the the abandoning liberal defensive crouch constitutionalism, the piece that was uh, turned out to be the workout, the opposite of what the guy was saying. Um, yeah, that, <laughs> when he said "fuck Anthony Kennedy" because we don't need him anymore, it's like this. <laughs> It turned out to be on the right. It's like that's how it worked out for us. Fuck Anthony Kennedy. He we didn't need him, and he's gone now. Um, yeah, you know that, that's one of the things. Is like Thomas is definitely the guy who's driving the train. It's, you know when 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 the five, you know the the conservative block is is moving in step. Those five people. It's like Thomas can really drive a lot of the decisions, and and we we see this where they're a, a lot more uh, expansive with what they're willing to do. Um, you know, again, it's one of those things like, yeah, I was, I was fairly moderate about a lot of stuff and, and still kind of am, but it, it's one of those things of, you know, people make a confuse, they get confused when you talk about the position you happen to hold term in terms of moderation versus moderation in terms of believing in something, even if it may not, you know, believing in something and sticking to it even when you're being attacked and being much more militant about the position which is actually, you know, a different way of looking at, at moderation. Like you can you can hold fairly extreme views, but be moderate in terms of implementing them because you don't have a lot of belief in what you believe in. You're not willing to actually fight for that. And you have something that's more. You can have a fairly like milk toast view of things, but you just absolutely will not bend on what you happen to believe in. And you see that it's very interesting because the people who get attacked. By these leftists, you know, you, you tend to be a little bit more militant in what you believe in, which doesn't necessarily mean you're like an extremist. It just means like your eyes are kind of open to some of the stuff, and you're much much less willing to compromise on what you actually do stand for. Right, and and again about effectiveness, uh, you know, also I would say again I would say effectiveness and willingness and willing willingness to upset sacred cows as well is an important part. You know, Donald Trump. Uh, upset sacred cows and all this because he, as he said, he referred to himself as a fighter and all that. And again, he, now this is not someone who'd really been that attacked, 
but he was in fact attacked through a campaign. He'd actually, you know, basically grown up, you know, lap of luxury and all this. Again, very different, uh, very, very, very different background from Thomas. Grew up, you know, uh, as rich as you could ask for, you know, um, with all with all the, you know, advantages you could ask for in life and all this. Uh, media coverage, glowing media coverage, and able to, you know, have a tabloids answer his calls and all this. And, you know, to some degree, uh, you know, and then they start to abandon him, but he's used to sort of this, this WWE-esque fighting kind of thing. And I think to some degree, though, Trump was willing to fight in a way others weren't in a WWE fashion. That still made him more effective because he was still was fighting, albeit in a WWE fashion. The problem is, in, in some ways, I would say, uh, Trump didn't realize it was no longer WWE. It went to not just even MMA, but more like a valet tudo. Uh, which is um, which is uh, Portuguese for uh, essentially no holds barred, uh, you know, truly like fish hooking, eye gouging, depending on where what kind of barrio you go into or a, or a favela you go into, it could be actually life changing, damaging injuries, and he didn't understand that. But nonetheless, he fought, and the fact that he fought when no one else expected to fight. I mean, and so like I said, let's expand to be on the court. When you talk about Republican presidents before Donald Trump, who are we talking about? We're talking about George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush. We're talking about Ronald Reagan. We're talking about um, you know Nixon, which which is sort of interesting. But you know these people um, never really fought per se. You know they they seem very uh, aloof and all this kind of stuff. You have uh, George W. Bush with his compassionate conservatism. You have George H. W. Bush with his technocratic, you know, former head of CIA, and again, not really fighting things, and these kind of triangulation thing, and always reaching out, and backing down on things, and all this. Ronald Reagan, sort of his happy warrior, he's contrasted with, but he's still very, uh, he's a very grandfatherly figure. All those, those silly liberals don't understand, will right country, you know, he fights Soviet Union, but doesn't fight the, the liberals, they're just misguided liberals and stuff, he doesn't fight. Ironically, when you get to Nixon, you actually get fighter, which is why people like Roger Stone, um, you know, have tattoo of him, and he's still a very polarizing figure. So you have man who, for instance, uh, I forget the exact context, but there was the hard hat riots where essentially, I think it was during a convention, essentially, there was protesting hippies outside, and he encouraged construction workers because that was part of his voting base to actually go bring their construction hat, which is an advantage in a fight. You can't get knocked out, and you can't get hit over the head, and to go brawl with hippies. And apparently, they absolutely uh, beat the tar out of them. But, you know, Nixon, to some degree, understood, uh, you know, literal street fighting and necessity of that and willingness to do so. And so, to some degree, I would say that's also why he's still a reviled figure today, is that he also was willing to get in the trenches, you know, and, and really go after things. And understood the battle, and you know, like I said, and so like I said, you look at the the difference of character that it makes with a person, and uh, pursuing priorities, and this is this is I think something that's again understudied and underappreciated for someone that's a truly effective figure, whether or not they're a Supreme Court justice, whether or not they're a president, whether or not they're a senator or something like that. It's this kind of uncompromising, but also toughness and willing to get in the dirt and the kind of grit, as it were. It's a it's a it's a different quality that is not discussed enough, and I, as I said, it's, I think it's covered when people try to talk, talk about the rhinos, but it doesn't capture it quite right. You know, it's you have Paul Ryan. You know, is Paul Ryan a rhino? You know, but you know, for me, 
I really doubt, I really believed he was Sham. When I heard all these, you know, I forget, this would have been probably 2012 or something like this. They talked about him having a six-pack, and they never showed pictures of six-pack. And I said, you know what, this guy's a phony. He's a phony who, who doesn't take pictures of six-pack and all this. He, all the magazines claim he does P90X, you know, workout program. He has a six-pack. Never saw a photo of him. I didn't believe that kind of thing. I didn't believe he'd fight for things. And so he did not. And this is, like I said, this is just a difference. You know, do they stand up? Do they have these kinds of principles, values? Do they uh, represent themselves in such a way that it's more than just being an honorable man or something like that? Or do they hate the other side? But do they actually have courage or conviction to stand for um, true value of self and, you know, uh, I guess to some degree, personal honor? Yeah, I think um, it's an interesting thing. And it's one thing I, I want to really delve into this in, in a completely separate episode because I feel like it's something that deserves um, focus. But the idea of, you know, again, it's like lefties tend to be very class conscious and I almost feel like this this is sort of a class consciousness in the sense of it's like where where's your loyalty lie? Are you are you loyal with with an elite class, you know, or are you loyal to the flyover kulaks? Are you something? Or will, are you willing to you know help your friends and harm your enemies? And are you willing to make the sacrifice for the, for these people? And what you see so many times is you know there's been the folks who may have made some noise that way but then they get subsumed into an establishment class and they 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 switch their identity but the people who don't do it the people who don't are the ones who are violently attacked you see this with thomas you know we, we see roberts who wasn't attacked he went to dc and now he's a swamp monster i guess you want to say like you were mentioning you brought up the good point about um the obamacare ruling where he switched Apparently, near the end, he switched his vote, and, you know, they had to rewrite it. Um, but, yeah, you see that with him, but you don't see that with Thomas. Thomas is like, fuck you, I'm going to fight you the whole way. And the, and you see that even with Trump so much. And I feel like Trump um, wasn't really his full intention. Like, I remember the night, election night, when he comes out. Like, the first thing he says is, sorry to keep you waiting, folks. It was complicated business. And I figured, you know, my suspicion was at that point was he called Hillary and he agreed not to prosecute her and on the condition that she would, you know, go ahead and, and concede. That was my assumption when I heard that. I was, I was at Twitter headquarters in San Francisco at the election watch party. And when he said that, that was my first thought because, you know, I was like, probably struck some sort of deal. And I was like, hey, that's fine. Hillary's career is finished at that point like yeah it would be cool to throw her in prison but i was like you know what her career is finished she got humiliated on the world stage you know if if he struck a deal with her you know for a seamless transition and her you know receding into the dusk of history as a disgrace that's fine i can deal with that we didn't get that we did not get that and i think we see that now you know so many people who and I sensed that a lot from a lot of right-wing people. Because, of course, you know, that night I went downstairs. There was a mob of Antifa people standing at the door with bats and tower irons who threatened us as we left. And it got worse. And I sensed, you know, at the beginning there was a lot of people who thought, hey, you know, we won, so we're going to be accepted as legitimate. And it didn't happen. And now I feel like there's a much more militant edge to things. Um, I want to get more into some 
and we'll do this on like a separate episode but i want to really dig into like you know elite class intra-elite class conflict and, and the things that may be suggested by that because i think it's a very interesting topic that people need to learn more about because too many people get to focus on the elite without knowing what the word means where it came from and how it drives history and i want to talk about that separately but um yeah you know and this is one of the things where i've seen over the last couple of years last few years from the inauguration on you know it's like they weren't going to accept it leftists started attacking more and more people well and more and more people have gotten that sense of like these fucking people are coming for us so go ahead well and so again funny funny thing mentioning hillary clinton who hadn't really come up but if you want to talk about tough as leather tough as nails you know part of the celebration of hillary was this but frankly the fact that that uh, the, the sort of lack of legitimacy while she maybe conceded but took time to do so this isn't unprecedented. People with people have very short memory. It's very funny. Two thousand eight, Obama is elected over Hillary Clinton, and there was a particular faction of Democratic Party called Pumas. Party unity, my ass. That's what Puma stood for, yeah. and they refused to accept. Uh, they refused to accept Obama. And they said it was her turn and all this kind of stuff. And the rhetoric of her turn and the the, the, the attacks. You know, she talked about the vast right wing conspiracy through the '90s. Hillary Clinton is is you know I'd say a bit more technocratic as far as things go. But on the other hand, I think you know there have been particular things that she actually has hardened on, sort of gun control and stuff like that, um, where it's actually she has been hammered into that. An interesting thing in college, she was conservative she actually changed later to become democratic and so this this goes with um it wasn't i don't think she was so, so much attacked for it but she also sort of sought out uh different uh different area just as donald trump was democrat who then becomes a republican and sort of both has to prove himself there's an interesting dynamic of the con of conversions if they convert correctly and so you know and again you compare it to a romney or the george w bush they've been raised in it it's the family tradition it leads to this sort of um, you know, laxity. It leads to this this sort of paucity. It leads to this 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 laconic lack of strength and just 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 laziness, as it were. And also becoming a, essentially a rhino kind of thing in ways. Whereas like people that have to convert, and this is something talked about by Malcolm X. He talks about the the strength in his the autobiography. He talks about that the, the strength of a convert. I believe it was specifically his sister. He converts the nation of Islam. Uh, fought him for a very long time to remain Christian, but after she was converted, she became most strident, uh, you know, uh, strident uh, nation of Islam defender and sort of a, a convert and zeal converting. And frankly, given that, I was not shocked to read that Thomas had had a uh, had poster of Malcolm X in his dorm room, according to according to article that we read. And if taken at face value, this would seem why would uh, why would so, a yeah, conservative uh, have a black radical, a black nationalist radical separatist in ways, in his dorm room? But it has to do with again uncompromising values. Not not we're going to reach accommodation, which is what uh, which is what. Martin Luther King Jr. was. Well, Martin Luther King Jr. was all, we can all live together, we can reach accommodation, it's all about compromise. And Malcolm X was more about building each ourselves up, we don't need the other people, and to the extent we need them, we need to do whatever we can to sort of separate ourselves, to build this sort of independent, uh, strong structure. And this kind of self-reliance and sort of self-respect, essentially, is part of uh, that, that, that different profile of someone, I think, that has call it a, a spine of steel yeah i think um 
you know, and again, th this topic is one we're going to make on an entirely different episode because I want to sit down and have a really in-depth discussion on this. But I think really the thing that I take away from people like Trump and with Thomas is above everything else, you know, they, they are a good example of, of things that you may think of as a counter elite, as a dissident elite. Like, yes, they are elites, but they are the dissident elite. And dissident elite, more than anything else, have been the, the drivers of change in history. And, you know, the, the very militant people who refuse to yield, and, you know, they are elite, definitionally the elites, but they have a radically different belief system and a structure. Uh, they would desire a different structure. And, you know, that's the ones where the change comes from. Right. The, the, the lack of compromise. I mean, you know, the, uh, people may dislike it, but this is a contextual insertion project. The, the personal history of Che Guevara was from a wealthy family going to medical school. The Motorcycle Diaries covers this. He sees sort of injustice and stuff like that and decides to dedicate himself to becoming a revolutionary and uh, becomes a revolutionary to the point that he is basically, my understanding is, he is truly the, uh, the guy who enjoys gunning, gunning down uh, political prisoners. In the revolution, he's the one that travels over to Angola and it becomes a traveling revolutionary, not just uh, uh, fomenting ideas, but going hands-on and and shooting people and in engaging in foco and engaging in actual combat to 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 do these things. And that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of profile that, frankly, isn't isn't that surprising and is something that that. Uh, recurs again and again. It's a small amount of people that do this, but they uh, they're the axis upon essentially upon which history turns. Uh, you know, George. You know, uh, George Washington was elite. Uh, you know, or George Washington was elite and all this in in uh, in you know um, yeah, British Army and all this. And then he decide. You know, he he switches sides, and this is why he's such a figure. But uh, Simon Bolivar, who frees South America, perfect example. He he was richest or second richest like family in all of South America. Let me repeat for you. Richest or second richest family in all South America, I can't recall off the top of my head. He was born to unimaginable privilege in, what would that be? He was doing uh, the revolution around 1815. So this would be like late 1700s. Again, around George Washington time. And yet, um, he, he decides essentially after seeing, seeing like, you know, what he sees as decadent and sort of, uh, sort of corrupt uh, and just, just, uninspiring lifestyle in Spain, he decides to dedicate himself and he you know, he, he makes he makes a pledge to to uh, on the the uh, the rock where the secession of the plebs happens in Rome. He makes pledge until his dying breath he will free South America from uh, Spanish rule until his dying breath and succeeds. Again, he was an elite who chose that and refused to bend. He was known as uh, he was known as Iron Ass as translation because he actually wanted to to um, to impress the gauchos or to impress the caballeros, to impress the the, uh, the the horsemen, to impress the men on horses by not um, by not wimping out after a five mile ride, but to ride all day with them. Uh, you know, which which you know is rather hard to literally on on your butt uh, riding it. He was known as Iron Ass because he did that to show. Uh, the strength of conviction to show that kind of thing, and that kind of personal discipline, that will of steel, and that kind of uh, that kind of uh, temperament is truly what it takes to sort of lead these kinds of things, to become a leader of men, to become a leader of movements, to to become the axis upon which history shifts. And you know, again, he was an insurgent against that. Thomas was an insurgent, you know, an insurgent against uh, court decorum and against uh, the sort of um, you know, everyone getting along as far as these things go. And they become insurgents, and then what happens is, after a certain point, they become the person in charge. And so this is, like I said, you know, it's a slightly different tact, 
but you know it involves everything from street violence to uh, to uh, street violence to a rhetoric in a bedroom to street violence to then gaining political momentum and to then actually becoming uh, a sovereign and powerful power broker in and of your own right and it's something that's not discussed enough and that 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 quality of character not just someone that's competent so Mitt Romney is competent but he's not competent for the right things or will not back you for the right things um, you know uh, you know uh, John McCain suffers very much in, in uh, POW camps and all this kind of stuff. He has his arms forever broken, so he's also physically strong and, you know, a kind of uh, military background. Oh, perfect example of something. Yet, he doesn't necessarily fight for anything uh, recognizable. He fights for this, this you know, uh, iconoclastic, he's called Maverick. But he doesn't fight really for any uh, doctrine, as it were. So, like I said, it's a, it's a combination of factors. No single one is enough, but it's important to understand what you're looking for um to define where you want to where you want to get to yeah i think um it's it's all the more good reason this this episode is going to be released on july 4th um so much of this you know we're talking about now especially the founder so many people express um shock and amazement that you know the founders were these wealthy elite men and it's interesting because the, the normie like the normal response is like, wow, I can't look these people risk so much because they had so much to lose. And there's kind of a leftist response to that where they attack them because of that. Like, well, yes, of course, they're these rich men, these rich, wealthy men. Of course, they would revolt. And I'm like, well, you know, like, yeah, it's it's it's, it's true in a sense, because, yes, it's more of like they were the elite. They were these successful driven men. They had this very tight network of successful people, very smart, very successful. It's like that's one of those things where. Being intelligent, being successful, being prominent, and having all these connections built a network for the revolution that was to come. Because, you know, again, it's like they had a lot to lose. And that's because, and we see this throughout history. It's like these people, because they have so much to risk and they're so well connected and intelligent and driven, they become, it becomes a base of the dissident elite. And that's really what you see in the Revolutionary War. And it's interesting, too, because one of the things we mentioned in the last episode. Um, like the 1905 Russo-Japanese, like the, there's the 1905 Russo-Japanese War, and there was also a revolution that came immediately after the Russians lost that, and it was it was a failed revolution partly because the people who ended up leading the successful revolution in 1917 were in exile. So all the all the elites and the aspiring elites and the distant elites they were either in jail or they were in exile or they're out of the country somewhere. So there was no one there to lead the people who were uprising that had actually put a lot of thought in what it took what it take what it would take to have a successful revolution so you see that sort of thing and we're going to actually save that one for a separate episode that'll come out next because i want to really dive into like the character of, of elites because so many people just think they use it as a pejorative and they're like elites and they mean like hillary clinton at all like you know all her friends and the epstein networks of just you know this monolithic group that moves in you know, lockstep with no dissension. The Davos man. Yes, they see they see it as like Davos men scaled up, you know, as this monolithic block of people with no form of, you know, of dissension or anything. And I'm like, no, it's like you can see the fractures beginning already. And I'm not going to dox a lot of those people because some of those people are flying under the radar from normies. But, you know, I think one everyone has seen that's starting to shift that way is Elon Musk. But that's just one example. And then Trump was another example of that. He, Trump is, yes, Trump, people are like, Trump's not your friend. He's an elite. I'm like, 
yes, Trump is elite, but he's the distant elite. You can see him, you know, he knows who he is, he knows what he is, he doesn't try to pretend he's not. And we're going to save that big discussion because I want to have a big deep dive into elite dynamics and we can talk about Pareto and all the other stuff. And, you know, that's going to be a great one. But thank you so much for jumping on this one and I look forward to you to joining me on the next one. Hasta luego.